Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. 2022 has been a great year for excess returns. We were able to interview some of the smartest people we know and more than double our audience as a result of the many great insights our guests have provided and the support of our loyal listeners. As has been the case since the beginning of the podcast, we've tried to focus on talking to investors who have had a long-term track record of success, and we've tried to extract the major lessons all of us can learn from them. As we start the new year, we wanted to look back at 2022 and highlight some of the most important lessons we have learned from the interviews we've conducted during the year. Here are the five biggest lessons we have learned from our five most popular interviews of 2022. Number five, Wes Gray. In 2022, we started a new series where we looked at how some of the smartest investors we know think about building their own personal portfolios. The series proved to be very popular, and three of our top five most viewed episodes came from it. The first of the three and our fifth most popular episode of the year was with our good friend Wes Gray of Alpha Architect. In the interview, Wes outlined a series of principles he uses to construct his personal portfolio that all of us can learn from. Here is Wes's guiding investment philosophy. So my personal portfolio, it, I mean, it's kind of like ties to like our core beliefs as a firm, frankly, but basically evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos, and then what I call skin in the game, right? So evidence-based in the sense that, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be what I talk trash about every day, the maniac behavioral person. So everything we do has got to be based on my best assessment of the overall evidence out there you know, for or against like a given approach. Um, the other thing is long-term, same thing. Like there's a lot of stuff that's evidence-based, but it requires horizon and discipline to stick with it. So, so I just, I anchor on that. And then the other one is robust to chaos. What the heck does that mean? Well, as you guys know, we're in the asset management business. Um, and so I'm not here to be a mean variance optimizer. I need to kind of focus on, hey, I have assets that are built to compound and I know they're super risky, but so I need to have other assets that mechanically will work on average or most of the time when the you know what hits the fan. So, so I, I need to really think about tail risk management a lot more than, well, probably everyone should be, but in my case, I need to think about even more because so much of our business is tied to what the market does. Um, and then kind of the final thing, which is also somewhat unique to just being an asset manager, is it's all about skin in the game, where I just believe that if you're charging people you know, fees and you're asking someone to put their own money that they worked their ass off their whole life to earn, you, know, you should probably invest in the same things that you're telling other people to invest in. So I'm just, even though that's not really commonplace in our business, and you can make fancy arguments of why that's stupid, because you don't want to invest in your own products because they're correlated to human capital, blah, blah, blah. But it's just, I just feel like it's bad leadership to, to not have a lot of skin in the game because, you know, that's just what you should probably do. Uh, so those, those are kind of ideas. Evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos and having skin in the game. That's not obviously something that other people have to deal with because they may not be an asset manager, but it's that simple. Evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos. Nowhere in there does it say strong relative performance to the S&P 500 over the next year. Right. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say career risk focus. It doesn't say tracking error centric. It doesn't say, 
you know, anything that pretty much everybody focuses on because that's irrelevant to what my first principles are. And so that's why this portfolio, it's, it doesn't look anything like anything that you would ever see in the, you know, the standard, hey, buy 60% S&P, 40% bonds and call it a day. Um, that's just crazy. And unfortunately, people are learning that, you know, being long SP 500, 60% and long treasuries, 40%, which was the greatest hedge fund 2.0 sharp ratio strategy over the last 25 years. Like, it's not that easy, right? And this year you're down 15 to 20% and your future looks pretty miserable. Given the rapid rise in inflation this year, many investors have been asking whether they need to make changes to their portfolio. But when we asked Wes, he reminded us that this framework helps him to eliminate that type of decision. If you've built out a solid strategic investment plan under the guise that you don't know what the future will hold, like when the future unfolds itself, you'll continue to not know what the future hold. So why would you change the plan, right? Like you, you, that means you didn't have a good plan to start off with. So my portfolio is obviously designed structurally to be all weather, right? Like it is designed and, it, and I will not change anything. There's nothing that I can even foresee in, in the, the macro landscape, anything that, that would change how I manage my portfolio because it's already designed to deal with all the potential chaos and uncertainty of the future. It's weird to me when people are like, oh, now I, I need to get this trend following stuff. I'm like, dude, like you needed trend following like six months or a year ago but we wouldn't have known it was going to work six months a year ago from now. You need you need it all the time. That's the point. Like like you, you can't be chasing your tail after every big event or every big scare. You know it's just crazy to me that people operate like that. One of our favorite things about Wes is his willingness to challenge conventional beliefs when the evidence supports it. Many investors believe that bonds should be a core part of the portfolio, and that investors need to use a buy and hold approach with them. Wes pushed back on this idea when we asked him how he uses bonds in his personal portfolio. How do you think about bonds? I mean, do you think given your long-term tide horizon, you really don't have any need for bonds? Yeah, I mean, this, I, I know this sounds so crazy uh, because so many people are so anchored on bonds and even we sometimes recommend them for behavioral reasons. But I, I really believe that bonds, like commodities, like Bitcoin, like a lot of things, they are tactical assets that you should only own with trend. I personally think that buying and holding bonds is absolutely crazy because especially right now, because they're low return, they have terrible taxation. It just doesn't make any sense to me, right? So, so I'm all about owning bonds if they're in a trend, but it, why would I want to own like, especially high duration bonds if they're not in a positive trend? Like to me, that's just crazy. Uh, like what's the point? Um, and you know, Obviously, a lot of people are learning that the hard way this year, but, but that just seems to be like an evergreen thing. Like, same thing, like, why would you ever own commodities, buy and hold? Like, it's insane to me why you would do that. Like, if they're in a trend, great, own them. If not, don't own them. You know, save your capital for like under your pillow or for some, wait for a trend to show up and then go, go allocate to it. So anyways, long story short, I think bonds are kind of nuts, personally, um, unless you had a way to tax manage them then they would get a little bit more interesting, but just the fact that you get a, got to give up half of the income associated with them right off the bat, it just makes them very unattractive to me. Number four, Med Favor. 
Our fourth most popular episode of the year was with Cambria Investments founder, Meb Faber. Meb's article he wrote where he outlined his personal portfolio was a big inspiration for us starting the Show Us Your Portfolio series, so we asked him to come on as our first guest. One of the challenges many of us have with our portfolios is defining our long-term goals. Meb offered us an interesting take on one way to do that focused around the idea of freedom. I want to be on that first rocket spaceship to Mars with Elon. That's what I, I what's the ticket going to be, like $100 million? Um I think um, there's a couple things, and these obviously can change throughout time. You know, a 20-year-old me is going to have a different answer to this than a 40-year-old me and 60 and hopefully 80, 100, 120-year-old me. Um, and uh, laying the foundation, I think, is is really important because on FinTwit and elsewhere, writing academic papers and books, like we tend to argue like the final 5% because a lot of the, the base case, the foundation is assumed. And, um, a good example will be, you know, I, I think over a certain income and net worth, like you want to get to that freedom level where you have freedom and capacity to choose your own path. Those old choose your own adventure books. Right. Um, and I think that's important for a lot of people and that number whomever you ask is, is different. The challenge of course, and you see this in all your neighbors, all your friends, people that, uh, come into money, people that bought Bitcoin at a hundred, uh, on and on you adjust. There's the sort of hedonic treadmill of income and wealth. And, and that I think is, is a problem for a lot of people. Uh, and then you see all the polls is like, how much money do you need to retire? How much money do you need to be happy? And it's always like, twice as much as everyone currently has. Um, the good news is I'm, I'm a, I'm a very content human. Uh, you know, I, I, while I work in the financial world, it doesn't necessarily, um, I'm at the point where I feel a, a great deal of contentment and peace and freedom. And I think, um, you know, that a lot of the literature shows that, uh, you need to get to like that 75 K amount of income, like, like the happiness curve really plateaus after that with inflation printing, maybe that's going to be a hundred K, but let's just round somewhere in there. And then above that, it's, it's sort of gravy. And then it gets into Jay-Z problems or excuse me, Biggie problems. Um, both of them, uh, but, but more money causing more headaches. And so, um, a lot of people who invest and get wealthy, this is one of the key things you have to avoid too. And, and William Bernstein talks a lot about this. He's like, once you get to a certain amount of wealth, and this means different levels, different people, um, you've won the game. And he says, you don't have to keep playing. He's like, once you win the game, you don't have to keep playing. And one of the biggest mistakes people make is they get wealthy or super rich and they still risk it all. And that to me is insane. And so you see example after example, after example, wealthy people that have all this leverage and crazy concentration, and then boom, the regime shifts and it's all gone. Not like part of it, it's gone, like all of it's gone. And so, uh, part of the wealth building, what we call, we wrote this four part series last year during, or excuse me, last year is 2022. Now during the pandemic, 2020, we wrote a four part series called the get rich portfolio the stay rich portfolio, which is interesting, particularly with what's going on right now with interest rates and bonds, uh, how I invest, which is what we're going to talk about today. 
And the last was investing at a time of Corona that was specific to some opportunities back in March, 2020. Um, but, but part of those buckets mentally getting rich and staying rich are different for a lot of people. And you see this a lot with business owners, they build their career, they do this business, they sell it. And then all of a sudden they have all this money and, and kind of the life they had before and the life they had after the, um, mental approach, the accounting. And even the portfolios uh, are very different. And this gets on to spending too. So any long-winded answer, which is what you get with me. But basically, you know, I think about um, wealth as freedom. Uh, you know, and we talk a lot about bemoan the fact they don't teach personal finance or investing or money in schools, which I think is a tragedy. But I think that narrative is changing. You're starting to see a lot more states adopting that curriculum. Um, but really reframing you know, this concept of money is as freedom and wealth as the ability to do, uh, kind of what you want, live where you want, make the life decisions you want and not, uh, be beholden to, uh, you know, um, be structured in a way where you're forced to make, uh, uh, uh opportunities, turn down opportunities or make this life decisions you don't want to. When we discuss Mev's approach to constructing his portfolio, he also outlined a very interesting concept he uses that focuses on using a get rich bucket and stay rich bucket. We asked him to explain this idea to us further. So, you know, th this is particularly, um, you know, uh, ties in for me specifically, but a lot of listeners too, as, as a business owner, Elon Musk had a, had a tweet years ago where he was basically like, look, if Tesla and, uh, space, SpaceX go bankrupt, like, so should I. And he was meaning he was talking about skin in the game, but he was talking about, uh, his leverage to these businesses he's running. And we start off the post by saying, look, Cambria is my asset management business. You know, we manage, uh, 12 ETFs and growing and depending on how you mentally bucket that, that's, that's somewhere between, I don't know, 50% and 99% of my net worth. And, um, the challenge for that is that. Uh, if you try to incorporate that, incorporate that to the portfolio, um, it, it gets to be what I call like a ski chairlift debate or, um, discussion psychologically, like, should you consider that within your portfolio or just mentally bucket it to the side because it has the very real chance of potentially declining or, or going to zero as many entrepreneur activities do. And so we said, okay, look, we'll acknowledge that this is there. But we're going to put it over here. And to me, like that's sort of the get rich kind of bucket. Um, most entrepreneurs uh, can can sympathize with the agony and ecstasy of running a business. Like it's tough, right? Like there's there's we often say the best um, compliment you can give someone in that world is just you survive. You your business exists the next day because many don't. And if you go back and look at a lot of like the top stock charts from decades past, you see that uh, you know. A lot of the names are unfamiliar to today. Uh, it's Amazon and Apple today, but not wasn't Amazon and Apple 50 years ago. Anyway, um, and so let's, if you put that aside for a second, uh, and then you get to actually say, okay, well, your actual portfolio, what do you do? And so for me, it kind of, it does go with that little bit of Talmud-esque, uh, you know, methodology. And so, um, and this has evolved over the years a bit. Um, one of the biggest evolutions that started for me in 20, 
2014 is when I started this. And I very publicly kind of documented this on the blog and on Twitter and on um, podcast in real time as it was happening. As I said, you know, an area I would like to get educated about more is, is startup investing. And uh, it's interesting to me. It seems to be like it's more and more accessible at this point. I want to pay some tuition and start to dip my toe in this world. And I said, look, if I lose all my money, I'm going to be okay with that. I said that I wouldn't actually be okay with it, but I said that I would be okay with it mentally. Like that was my expectation. Um, if I match the S and P amazing. And if anything beats that gravy, but I want to start to learn how this process works. And so fast forward almost a decade later, uh, I've invested in over 300 startups. Um, and, uh, that portfolio has grown to be a much bigger part of my pie than it, than it was in the beginning. And it has some interesting characteristics. Um, one of the biggest takeaways in all of investing, particularly with equities. And it's interesting because if you talk to private investors, they really understand this public investors, I think kind of get it, uh, but not as much. And a lot of private don't think the public investors get this is this concept of power laws and the really big, massive returns. And so what that means is, uh, you know, how many investments listeners, if you bought and that sucker doubles, I mean, we're dancing, we're thinking about buying a uh, happy hour tonight. We're talking about the new apartment we want to buy in Florida or maybe vacation. We're going to go on, we're going to buy a new house on and on, right? Like a double. That's incredible. Forget like triple or quadruple. My God, like we're, we're telling our neighbors at that point, how smart we are, but if you look back in the history of public stocks, uh, and the best and binder study, and there's others that have, that have come out, we have some links in our posts, but you know, virtually all the returns of an index over time and S and P anything similar are driven by these really massive winners, not doubles or triples, but the 10 Xers, the hundred Xers, the thousand Xers. So Apple and Amazon, uh, Walmart's the, the, uh, I was going to say IBM, that's a terrible example, but at one point it was, but these companies that have gone from 200 million to 2 billion to 20 billion to 200 billion, and the vast majority of stock returns are driven by that. People understand that in startup investing, the beauty of startup investing, uh, is, is twofold one. And I used to think this was a bug or a negative part of investing. And now I think it's a feature is that. You know, the ideal scenario, and this is very Buffett-esque of investing in stocks, is you buy it and you hold it for 10, 20 years. You go back to some of these books uh, and concepts on 100 baggers. Uh, Chris Myers got a great book about this topic that, that walks through a lot of these 100 bagger companies and public stocks in history. Most people in the Robin Hood, you know, era want those returns today. Like I'm, I'm looking for these 100 baggers, you know, this week, but in reality, it usually takes like a decade or two these compounders that compound at 20% for two decades. The problem is most of us can't hold them that long or won't emotionally. You know, the example we get was Apple, which our largest and oldest fund held from 2013 all the way to 2022. We actually just recently sold it. I was very sad about this. It's like, you know, put sending a kid to college or something. Um, but if you held Apple since the eighties, it declined by 75% in every decade, except for 20, tens. I think I don't think it declined. So the challenge of holding that compounder is really hard. And Amazon, my, my God, media loves to talk about that. That sucker's declined by 95% at one point. 
So the beauty of private markets is you can't sell them. Like you buy a, a private investment, you're stuck with that sucker. You, you may be stuck with it forever. Um, but that to me is a good thing. Like you make the decision to invest, you better be certain. And then you have no choice to sell it. It's either going to get acquired, it's going to go out of business, or it's going to IPO. And that's about it. Um, so I think that's actually a feature, not a bug for investors today, because a lot of investors can't storm holding a stock. And so um, the second is the tax benefits. We don't need to spend an hour on that, but listeners Google QSBS. I think there's some very real tax benefits of, of startup investing. But but the biggest about this power law is that I think it's easier when you start from a market cap of 10 million to 100 extra investment than if you started at 10 billion to 100 exit, right? Um, and so this applies to small caps and micro caps too. If you weigh it in that world, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity in public markets, but I think that the math works in your favor just because of size. So that to me has always been like this sort of get rich bucket of equities of businesses and owning those uh, to me is, is where um, you can really make a lot of the life changing wealth. Uh, I think it's also, depending on your perspective, a very much stay rich bucket too over time, particularly with inflation. Um, but, uh, but the, the mental bucketing, that was a really long-winded answer on this topic, but, uh, that's the starting point for me. Number three, Rick Ferry. Our third most popular interview of the year was with Rick Ferry of Ferry Investment Solutions. Many investors tend to think that adding complexity to a portfolio increases its returns. And that can be true in some cases, but most of the time, simplicity wins out in the end. Rick has long been an advocate of a simple, low-cost investment approach. He explained the benefits to us. Well, the benefits... Uh, well, tell me what the disadvantages are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know it. I don't know any disadvantage. Um, the benefits are, um, as you've been in this business for three, four decades, you begin to realize that, you know, if all I did was get the market return, that, that was it. Uh, stock market return, the bond market return. That's all I did. I'd actually be better off financially than I am today. And that's true for me. And it's true for most people. The minimum amount of trading you do, the better off you are. So, uh, but both from a, a you know, behavioral mistake standpoint and also a tax standpoint. So starting from that premise, you know, how do you make your portfolio that way? Uh, what's the simplest way of doing it? And the answer is, well, you buy a total stock market index fund and a total international index fund and a couple of bond index funds and you're done. Uh, don't really have to do much of anything else. It's just what allocation between those funds are you going to have? And you hold on to it for the rest of your life. Um, you're going to outperform at least 97% of all other investors doing that. Uh, and I, I, maybe I could get that. Maybe I could be in that other 3%, but I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and it's not worth it for me to try because if I'm going to be in the you know, 90th percentile as far as best returns, the top percentile, well, that's good enough for me. I mean, when we were coming aboard the carrier, we didn't have to be absolutely perfectly on center line. You had to be very, very, very close, but you were going to, you were going to live if you were a foot one way or the other. <laughs> it's the same thing here. I'm not trying to be number one. I'm trying to be in the top 10 and I can get there. 
with just a simple portfolio of a few good index funds. So why not? It's it's almost a guarantee. I say almost because I can't ever use the word guarantee, but it's almost a guarantee you're going to be there. Despite all the benefits of simplicity, many investors still want to build complex portfolios. We asked Rick why that is. And how about the answer on uh, why individuals want complexity? I mean, can you, can you coach me here and get me to stop tinkering with my portfolio and putting all these complex things in there? Because you want to outperform the market and, and that's, and you think you, you have the brain power to do it. And so you try all these things, even with indexing, you start out with simple indexing, but then you go to factor investing and, you know, we'll start some momentum strategy and, you know, you do the West gray thing. <laughs> Sorry, Wes, if you're listening to this, uh, you know, and the idea is you start adding all this complexity to your portfolio. You just think somehow, some way it's going to optimize the portfolio and you're going to be optimized for all these different risks. And you keep tinkering with it and changing it and, you know, doing different allocations, all this stuff. In it. And eventually what happens is you, and the individual investor will eventually, if they're smart, they'll say, enough of this already. Let's just go back to the good old. Jack Bogle simplicity. And, and that's what individuals tend to do after a while. One way Rick has tried to help investors overcome their need for complexity is with his core four approach to investing. He explained it to us here. So what was this? It was simply, let's come up with some simple portfolios. And the, the first one was very simple. The first one I ever did, it was total stock market, total international stock, total bond, and tips. And the reason why tips were included was because tips were not, are not in the total bond market and it gives you a little inflation hedge. So that was the original, original core four. And then I said, well, maybe we should add some real estate because, uh, something like 13 to 15% of national income is rental income, but it's not reflected in the stock market. So if we want our portfolio to look more like the economy then the stock market, then we need to add more real estate. So I, I took the tips out and I put real estate in and I said, okay, total stock, total international real estate and total bond. And that was the next score for, and then, the, and then I said, well, what are we missing out of this? Well, we're missing is private equity. Well, you can't just go out and buy private equity, but what emulates private equity the best of all the sectors of the stock market that emulate the return of private equity, it ends up being small cap value. In fact, Wes Gray wrote a paper on this, but I had talked about it years ago. Small cap value kind of emulates private equity in return. So let's create a core four portfolio that was total global equity, because I only want four funds. That's the idea. Just going to do this whole thing with four funds, global equity, a world equity, and Vanguard has a world equity ETF. Real estate, because real estate is a big part of the economy. Small cap value, because that emulates that portion of the economy that we can't get in the stock market because it's private equity. And then total bond. And so my idea with this core four is no matter what strategy you come up with, I, I can create a four fund portfolio somehow, some way that'll do what it is you want to do, but only do it with four funds. And that's it. Just four. And uh, so far, so good, I think. I've been able to do that. And I created a website that said, okay, if you want to do ESG using four funds, this is how you do it. If you want a high-yielding portfolio with four funds, this is how you do it. And, and that's how I, I came up with that idea. 
but it's free. I mean, people can go and take a look at it. And, you know, I believe that the real, the driver of re investment return, 90% of it is your allocation between equity and fixed income. That's, that's 90% of the variability of return, but I think actually it's 90% of what you're going to get. So these little things about whether you're dividing it between small value and total market or some real estate and all that are very minor. But if this is what keeps you in the portfolio, if this is what you believe and you invest this way and it's going to keep you invested for the very long term, then, then do it as long as it keeps you invested. So that, that's how the core four came about. And I, I created this website and I put everything up there and I said, here you go. I hope this helps. Number two, Mike Green. Our second most popular interview of the year was with Simplify Asset Management's Mike Green. The amount of money that is managed using passive investment strategies has risen rapidly. By many accounts, passive now accounts for 40% of the market. Mike has done extensive research on what this means for investors. To set the stage, we asked Mike to explain some of the underlying causes of the rise of passive. So one of the, one of the dynamics that exists within passive, right, is, is that when you decide to buy the S&P 500, there are two reasons why you could decide to buy it. You could decide to buy the S&P 500 and all of the stocks that are in the S&P 500, all 505 stocks that are in the S&P 500 in proportion to their market capitalization. And you could decide to do that because you think that stocks are a really good thing to buy, right? Because it's March 2009 and stocks are really cheap. That's less of a concern, right? That discretionary thought process where you're actually applying some allocation schema that says, I think this is a good idea, right? That's not such a huge deal, although it does contribute to things like increased correlation of securities, et cetera, for very obvious reasons. If I decide to buy everything altogether or sell everything altogether, then they're going to behave more like each other than if I was deciding to just buy one and buy another one or sell one, et cetera, right? So you're seeing a rise in correlation associated with that, but at least it's somewhat thoughtful in its capital allocation process. The thing that really changed is in 2006 and then in 2012, as you highlight, the 401k space changed significantly. And it shifted from what used to be an opt-in system where if you were employed, you had to make a decision to allocate to a 401k, and then you had to choose what you were going to allocate to. And then on top of that, you had to be a, a, an investment expert because you were expected to maintain a certain allocation or change your allocation over time. And the data was fairly straightforward that the vast majority of people just did nothing, right? So when they went in initially, they were getting things like cash, right? They'd get a money market mutual fund and only after several years on the job would they wake up and be like, oh, I wonder how my investments are doing. Wait, I'm selling cash. I, I didn't change anything. So in 2006, that changed with the introduction of what's called a qualified default investment alternative. That qualified default investment alternative is the uh, product that you automatically default into when you go into your corporate 401k. And likewise, the 401ks themselves changed from opt in. In other words, I had to make an active choice to participate to opt out. I had to make an active choice not to participate, right? So that dramatically increased the amount of capital that flowed into the markets. Initially, they went in through things like balanced funds, like the the, the um, uh, PIMCO's, you know, uh, total return type products, right? Where it's a mixture of bonds and equities. And then in 2012, that default changed to what's called a target date fund. And a target date fund is a systematic allocation process that literally asks one question. When do you plan to retire? 
right? And with that one piece of information, then chooses how to allocate all of your capital, right? So everybody who plans to retire at the same time gets basically the same underlying allocation schema. That now has changed something radically because instead of me thoughtfully saying, hey, I wanna buy the S&P 500 because I think stocks are cheap, it literally now is a, every two weeks I buy the S&P 500, not because I think stocks are cheap, but because I have a job, right? That's changed the character of the market quite significantly and turned it into a very pro-cyclical dynamic. As long as people are getting more jobs, as long as more money is flowing in, you're seeing the dynamics of the S&P 500 or other risk exposures being bought on a continuous basis simply because people are employed. The core of Mike's research has been around the concept of how the rise of passive investing impacts markets. One of the key ways is in the rise in a correlation among securities. Mike explained this idea to us. So the increase in correlation is the first one, and it's, it's very simply saying, if everybody decides to en masse buy the S&P 500, or everybody decides en masse to buy the Vanguard Total Market Index or the BlackRock Total Market Index, which are the same, um, then you would expect the buying pressure and selling pressure to be coordinated in a similar fashion. And the slide that you'll post up shows the history of correlation holding volatility constant all the way back into the 1920s. Um, you know, there's some tricks around how to calculate that data set back over a very long period of time. But when your viewers see that chart, they'll see that we have entered into an unprecedented regime of extraordinarily high volatility that we've just never seen before, right? Um, so the, the evidence for that is quite compelling. Uh, the second big impact is, is that as passive investing grows, it actually drives higher and higher valuations. And that happens for two reasons. One is because passive indices are constructed on a market cap weighted basis, and there's some wrinkles around that, but by and large, it's a market cap weighted basis. When that happens, what it means is, is that you are allocating more capital, and by more, I mean M-O-R-E, not the firm more capital, but you know, you're adding higher levels of capital to stuff that goes up more. Right, so the momentum stocks receive more capital than the value stocks on just a structural basis. And this happens over time in a somewhat um, predictable fashion. When you reinforce momentum, when you buy more of stuff that has gone up more in price, you're almost inevitably contributing to a rise in valuation. And the data supports this very, very clearly. Um, there is some proprietary analysis that I've done around this that effectively tries to build, you know, what an account, what in economic terms you'd think of as supply and demand curves for equities. The behavior of passive strategies is what's referred to as perfectly inelastic. If you give them money, they will buy regardless of valuations. What will they buy the most of? Whatever went up most in the past, right? And so this drives dynamics of increased concentration in markets as well as an increase in valuations. The second thing that happens is because passive strategies don't try to time the market, they don't or, or aren't looking for opportunities to deploy cash on a discretionary basis, they don't carry any cash. And this is one of these things that people tend not to think about in terms of the structure of the market your typical active discretionary manager will carry about 5% in cash. Your typical passive vehicle will carry around 10 basis points in cash. 
The world's largest passive index fund, the Vanguard Total Market Index, is about $1.6 trillion in total market cap and it carries no cash. It actually had negative $100 million in cash at one point last year because it utilizes a line of credit in order to facilitate redemptions. Now that doesn't necessarily seem that it should lead to a huge change in the market structure, but if you just mechanically think about what would happen if somebody came up to you and pointed a gun in your face and said, buy equities or I'm gonna shoot you, right? What is the, what is the price that you will pay for equities? Well, guess what, it's higher, right? And so this is actually the mechanical impact of that loss of cash. It drives, it's, it's the equivalent of basically placing the entire market under duress and say, no, put this cash to work, right? And so that is another contributor to this increase in valuations. And one of the things that you'll see is, you guys I'm sure will share, is this pattern of rising valuations as passive gains share. And that's one of the things that I just want to emphasize over and over again is the key difference in my work versus a lot of the work that was done earlier and the academic community is now catching up and a lot of the papers that are coming out are very supportive of the analysis that I've done. It's not so much the share of passive that matters as the flow dynamics associated with passive. So when passive is gaining share, that means all the money that is coming in effectively is behaving in this new manner and changing the structure of the market quite dramatically. Another, so as we're running through the, the five factors that you highlighted, increase in correlation between securities, increase in valuation of securities, regardless of fundamentals. The next one is an increase in market concentration. Again, this is that feedback loop. The stuff that goes up gets more capital allocated to it, and therefore it goes up more in the next move, right? And so this contributes to the dynamics that we've seen, the rise of these extraordinary giants. Another way that passive influences markets is reduced ability for new companies to become public. So the traditional IPO has by and we remember from 99, 2000, has by and large gone away. And that's actually a really important recognition because what a company going public means is a discretionary manager says, I'm going to take a risk and deviate from my benchmark because I, I value and I think this company has the potential to outperform and help me achieve my objective of outperforming the benchmark. Well, if you take all the money away from the discretionary managers, there's nobody left, right? There's nobody left to take the risk on that IPO. When you look at behaviors that we saw in 2020 and 2021, things like special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, those are actually explainable under my theories because SPACs have a unique feature to them they, if done in sufficient size, become almost immediately eligible for index providers to buy into them. And so if you look at the largest holders of what I would argue are broadly outright frauds, things like a Nikola or, you know, many of these SPACs, uh, Clover Health, for example, many of these SPACs that went public to much fanfare with very poor business fundamentals, if any business fundamentals, Lordstown Motors, I mean, we can go on and on. If you look at the largest holders, in many situations, they're the passive vehicles that have bought in mechanically once these things became part of the indices. Um, and then the last point that I make is, is this dynamic of what's referred to as reduced market elasticity. So elasticity is basically how much does supply and demand change on the basis of price. You know, when you reduce elasticity or increase inelasticity, you raise the risk of extraordinary price movements. And again, I would point to the dynamics of passive. There's a 
academic paper that came out just in the last year by Valentin Haddad at UCLA. I'll provide you with a link to it. And his direct quote is, index investors are perfectly inelastic, right? As we grow them, the market is becoming increasingly inelastic. And I would put, I would point to things like AMC or GameStop. Again, if you look at who the largest buyers were of these, once they explode in price, the largest buyers have to be Vanguard, BlackRock, etc. Number one, Jim Carson. Our most popular episode of the year was with Kai Volatility founder, Jim Carson. One of the biggest lessons we have learned this year was how large the impact behind the scenes flows are on the day-to-day -day performance of the market. Jim is an expert in options and has done extensive research on the impact of option dealer flows. We all have a tendency to try to look at binary outcomes. We might think the market is going up, we might think it is going down, but we tend to focus on that one outcome. But the reality is that investing is all about probabilities. Jim explained this idea to us in our interview. You alluded to a concept that I think is really important. And, you know, a lot of people will take your work on Twitter and they'll try to use it in a binary way. So markets going up or markets going down and like just thinking about it's clear you think about all of this in probability. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of thinking probabilistically? Yeah, that's uh, such a great point. Great question. I try to hammer on this as much as I can, but some people just aren't used to thinking that right as an options trader. All we do is probability all day, right? Every option has a probability and it's part of a broader distribution, right? Um, and I've made this argument, I'll make it again on here. Um, you know, most people call options a derivative. Why? Because it's come from, uh, you know, originally people looked at stocks and bonds. That's how financial markets started. So people egocentrically think uh, anything that's based on that is a derivative. But mathematically, if you think about what options are, they're actually a representation of the full distribution of any one asset's outcomes. Vol is not an option asset class. Options are not an asset class. They are a product. They are a perspective on any asset class. And they're much more flexible and robust and a clear view of the full entity, which is a, an asset, whether it's a stock or a bond or a commodity. And what I mean by that is any option represents a different point on the option, uh, the, the outcome, the distribution of outcomes. At any point in time, it's a three-dimensional surface of probabilities that the market's betting on any outcome, as opposed to a stock or a bond or commodity, which essentially are binary, like you said, are either up or down. So most everybody thinks about the world in buy or sell, but the reality is an option is actually not a derivative. It's the underlying of each, uh, of each asset and the asset price is the summary, right? It's the expected value of that total distribution. And so understanding probability and under you, you can have two stocks for example same industry right same market cap no name and you would think as a stock trader that those two stocks are the same exact stock but the underlying distribution of them could be incredibly different one might have a really fat right tail one might have a very fat left tail one might be left distributed might be one might be right distributed completely different assets completely different personalities completely different people it's like looking at two people that are the same weight in the same color and saying they're the same people. They're not the same people. They have different probabilities, different sets of uh, characteristics. Um, and so options represent the full distribution of outcomes. And we really need to think about probabilities when we're betting. I would argue there's no reason to trade stock or, or bonds or anything ever because you're much better uh, suited to trade the specific part of the distribution that you want to bet on. It's much more flexible, much more robust. I think this is a big reason why we've seen a secular, since I've been in the business for 24 years, a secular increase 
involved in options trading. It's not just cyclical. It's very much secular. And, and that's because the adoption is these are superior products. They allow you to bet on much more precise outcomes in much more precise probabilistic ways. And I think that's important. That's how we should all be looking at markets and thinking about the world. When we make decisions, whether we do it mathematically or not, we do probability in our heads. What are the odds of this? Is this a good idea? Why? We're multivariate thinking about different outcomes and probabilistic coming to some type of conclusion in our heads. We may not rationally think about that all out uh, each day, but we should. And doing that actually comes to better outcomes. 2022 saw some major challenges in the macro world. We have quickly transitioned from a world of low rates and low inflation to a world where both have risen rapidly. With such changes, it has been challenging for investors to make sense of it all. Jim offered us an excellent framework to understand what is going on. So um, people have heard me kind of talk before. We'll, we'll kind of recognize uh, this broad structure, but I think it's important to back up and always revisit this. Um, much like I think about uh, dealer positioning as a function of liquidity and buying and selling, um, I think about the whole machine and the big macro picture in terms of buying and selling as well, right? At the end of the day, um, it is just buyers and sellers, right? And, and so there's a big machine, right? And these dealer flow dynamics are certain pipes, but from the top, ultimately, the, the flows are being determined by really two major pipes. There's, you could argue there's three. One of them is monetary policy, right? And it's how much money is being given to capital. Um, and there's fiscal policies, how much money is being distributed by, um, by government to people. Um, there's a reflexive earnings one in there as well, right? As, as stocks make money, they also uh, feed in. But those two pipes are two very distinct pipes and have very distinctly different effects. Um, people think the word stimulus and people have been very confused for some time. This has created a lot of consternation for quite some time. When they hear the word stimulus, they don't differentiate between monetary and fiscal, but they're incredibly different things and they create incredibly different liquidity uh, to different entities. Um, monetary policy, um, lowering interest rates or buying, uh, you know, through QE, buying assets that lower interest rates, ultimately sends money to capital. Why? Because who borrows money? The bottom 40% of people can't borrow money and don't. And the, the top 20, the 20% above that barely borrow any. If they do it for their homes, they do it just for their homes and nothing else, right? But the majority um, of people don't take uh, the majority of, of that money that the Federal Reserve um, you know, gives out or other central banks gives out. Who does? Corporations. Incredibly wealthy individuals also borrow a lot of money. Uh, they do it to invest in other real estate and to invest in other products to do vet leverage buyouts and do private equity deals, right? There's a lot of leverage that's concentrated in the top 1% of people. And the more money you send to those corporations and those individuals, the more money flows to investment. Corporations, you would think would, and the, the theory is broadly that, oh, well, if you print all this money and you, you you know, you're increasing the money supply. So, uh, so that should create inflation. Well, guess what? We've been doing secularly increasing fiscal policy since the, since 1980. And, uh, we've seen deflation essentially over that period, um, 
you know, uh, there's been dramatic deflation to extent we've had to do more and more and give out more and more money in order to balance that deflation. Why is that? That's incredibly counterintuitive because if you send money to corporations, what do corporations do? Uh, they're, they're profit maximizing entities, right? They have a very simple incentive structure. Their goals are to reduce their costs and to capture market share. So to get to, to, to compete uh, on price and product and ultimately create better technologies, better products. Uh, it's natural selection, if you will, free market economics on steroids. If you send money to, to, to that, you're sending money to supply. You are sending money to what I call planet Palo Alto. You're sending money to these, this other planet that's not going into um, you know, the, the, the money supply. It's going to these corporations that's a, that are on a different planet that create incredible technologies and innovations and, and, and compete on price. And that increases supply. We have generated a technological revolution in the last 40 years. That's what led to the duration trade. This is why value didn't perform for 40 years and growth did. Why? Because why bet on cash flows now? Why bet on getting any amount of money now if at the end of the day, you, you're not betting on that superior innovation, the superior technology and better market share 40 years from now, right? Uh, and, and, and capturing that market share. Because ultimately, if you make money now, it doesn't matter. You'll, you'll disappear as a company if you don't focus on the future and growth. So that monetary stimulus has created um, a technological revolution, deflationary environment, a move that is secularly into these growth uh, trades and led to dramatic speculation. Um, why? Because all the entities that were invested in these stocks, which have made more money, which have done more, have uh, invested more in them. And it's a secular momentum factor, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of the show. So we've just dramatically gotten the passive flows, which you have probably heard about uh, Corey Hofstein's paper, all of these other momentum flows into the market that pushed this. This is what allowed Amazon to exist. What does that allow Tesla and Uber and all these other corporations to exist? For the most part, these corporations didn't make money for 20 years, for 20 years. What investment outside of stock markets would you ever, you know, would you give, or give money if, if, you know, uh, they needed more and more money because they weren't making money uh, and, and you were betting on 40 year outcomes? Well, until recently, nobody would ever do that. That was almost insane, right? Um, and I'd argue Amazon wouldn't even exist if they, if we weren't in a period of dramatic monetary pause. Um, and, and so we've seen that now for 40 years, that's allowed these entities to exist. And that's been deflation. Now that could go on forever because the fed has a dual mandate. Their, their mandate is price stability and maximum employment. And those two things were being met and we were maximizing to GDP growth by doing this, except they don't have a, another mandate, which is very important. We all live in a place without people, human beings live in the system and ultimately giving more and more money to uh, the top to corporations and to investors who invest in those corporations leads to inequality. This is a story as old as time. Uh, money flows to the top because it's profit. It's, it's maximizing. It's natural selection. It's, it's, it, it, we're maximizing the mean. The problem with maximizing to the mean uh, is ultimately this competitive world leads to inequality. Inequality is, you know, equality is not a natural construct. Go point to nature and tell me where equality exists. Um, you know, these ideas of justice and liberty and equality, these are man-made constructs and they're wonderful constructs, right? If we see each other as, a, as equals and, you know, individuals, um, and, and we want to play eye to eye in a society, then these, these things need to exist. But ultimately 
these uh, these systems that are efficient, which are give the best violin players to the best violins, not the best violin players to the worst violin players, because music is infinitely beautiful, right? That's what Socrates said. Um, ultimately, this leads to a, a problem um, in inequality, and that inequality doesn't you know, that can't go on forever. And 40 years is two generations. It's just long enough for, um, for, for people to start saying, wait a second, I, my father did worse than his father, and now I'm doing worse than my father, right? Um, and enough to get populism and anger really building. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a massive populist wave coming. It started about eight, nine years ago, and it was given, you know, entities like Bernie Sanders on the left, Donald Trump on the right, both saw it coming and started taking advantage of this wave and started giving rhetoric and, um, you know, uh, things that the populist movement wanted, but it's not just here in the U S it's globally, right? Cause this whole monetary policy phenomenon has been global. And so as that's happened, we've led to a, Hey, uh, we're no longer interested as a people in, uh, mean outcomes and optimal outcomes for the total. We're interested in median outcomes because at the end of the day, the average person matters more than the whole, right? And the more you lead to these populist uh, uh, kind of mentalities, the more we have to take money from the rich and give to the poor in some way. And that's what fiscal policy was. Trump kind of brought the right left. Uh, the left went even further left and the whole population now was ready for a populist response. COVID happened. That was the spark. And we got $12 trillion of fiscal, po po uh, fiscal policy. That stimulus, very different than monetary stimulus. And people didn't really catch this early. We were out there vocally talking about it. So we've seen this coming. But that money is helicopter money. That is money that's going directly to people's pockets. Um, whether it's infrastructure spending or healthcare policy or, you know, first time home buyer tax credits or whatever um, you, you want to call it, all of these things are money flowing to people's po uh, pockets. And if you look at people on the bottom, balance sheets, as COVID started, exploded. People were doing better than they've ever done in their life. It's counterintuitive, but we gave a populist response. And those balance sheets led to um, inflation, right? There's a combination. It's a supply side issue as well because markets were closed, but uh, because, uh, uh, because of COVID. But as we're seeing, as uh, things are reopening, that inflation is not disappearing, right? Uh, because there's an unwind of globalization. Broadly, when inflation increases, we now get, we go from a benevolent cycle to the opposite. It goes from a cooperation game during times of lack of inflation and growth, globalization, to a competition game. And now entities globally are competing over kind of the same, right, the, the, the same pieces. We're trying to internalize um, our own means of production. We're trying to um, improve the lot of, of, of the people. And so, um, ultimately, that loop now leads to uh, inflation, which leads to more populism, right? And this is the great irony. Money gets sent to people. Uh, that's ultimately inflationary, and inflation hurts who the most? People on the bottom. So there really has to be now on what we started are starting to now see, which we again called for six months ago on a macro basis, which we're now seeing those exact policies are now fiscal responses uh, to inflation, which counterintuitively are going to exacerbate the problem, right? Now, whether it's first time homebuyer tax credits, which we're seeing in some places, gas tax holidays, all kinds of other price controls, people are unhappy. And that populism is still not, uh, has still not be, been vented and, and, and uh, improved enough, uh, particularly among the cohort 
that's been the most hurt. Who represents the lowest part, which is millennials and younger generations who didn't work the, the boomers. They weren't the investing class. They weren't the people with the money who benefited from this wave in financial markets. They were the, the labor class. They were the, uh, they're the entities who haven't been able to afford a home who, who at 20, they're, they're at 25% the rate of home ownership of the boomers were at their age, right? So now we're, we're seeing this and this group also move politically, demographically into the, uh, the political uh, point, uh, where, where they're going to naturally have grown up in this technologically revolutionary time with inequality. So, and the response is going to be for more fairness, more equality more justice. If you look at what our kids are being taught in school for the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's an emphasis on equality. It's an emphasis of these are not a coincidence. They're a response to the inequality and the things that we've seen over the last 40 years. So these cycles are big and they go, they go 40 years and you see them uh, over thousands of years, not just the last 100, 200. We can walk through them, you know, uh, the 60s, uh, you know, the most recent example, 68 to 82. What happened as interest rates went bottom left to top right? because of populism and all the, uh, all the, the fiscal policy during that time. Well, markets went nowhere, uh, right? Uh, the, the Dow Jones for 14 years, hard for people to imagine in nominal terms went nowhere for 14 years. It's hard to put your head around that. Um, in, in, in the real terms lost 70% of its value. And that's what happens. Multiple contraction happened, but money comes from the investing class. So supply and demand imbalance happens. There's less demand for for uh, these assets and there's more inflation. So margins, which are now at records, guess what? Compress over those periods. So price to sales, which is at a record, will likely actually the economy will grow relatively well. If inflation continues, you'll begin to see a lot more inventory built. People will bring forward demand and it's demand side economics. You'll actually begin to see, I mean, all this talk about recession. Yeah, we might get a recession in the short term, but it's very much a technical recession relative to a massive uh, growth over the last, which was kind of over-exaggerated over the recent period, we'd broadly expect that growth, if inflation does secularly continue, yeah, we'll get dips, but inflation secularly increases, we'll begin to see good economic growth. Um, but unlike the period we just came from, that economic growth will be met with poor earnings and much poorer multiples because people won't be willing to pay, um, pay the same price. So very kind of, uh, this is really a story that's as old as time. A lot of people just don't understand the difference between monetary policy and fiscal and the way the, water, the, the money flows through the pipe. So our broad way of looking at the world, my broad way is looking, is thinking about these flows and how do they, who do they flow to? Do they flow to investors or, or to buyers of goods? And how does that affect margins and demand for goods, demand for stocks? And what does that mean? Broadly, I can't emphasize enough. The, the economy is not the market and people have been somehow uh, fooled into thinking those two things are the same thing. They're often actually polar opposites and have different um, effects. Thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to Excess Returns in 2022 and to the guests who took the time to share their insights with our audience. We really appreciate it. We look forward to bringing you more great interviews in 2023.